Welcome back to another edition of Beyond the Snap Podcast. Uh, I'm here with Kirtan today, and let's go ahead and get right into it. Uh, and we're going to start off with some transfer portal reactions. Um, just to quit some quick um, developments that have occurred. And the first thing we're going to talk about is uh, Will Howard, who is going to be transferring to Ohio State from Kansas State. So Ryan Day has his quarterback um, after losing Kyle McCord to Syracuse. So, yeah, this is kind of – it's an interesting development. It's a sudden development. And what do you think? Uh, I mean, Will Howard this last season, I mean, you have to remember that Will Howard had a great season with Kansas State, I mean, his entire career playing over there. Of course, he won the Big 12 championship last year. He had really solid stats. And so, like, this season in particular, we'll look at Will Howard. And just off the bat, Will Howard had over 2,500 yards passing this last season, and he had a really good touchdown-to-interception ratio, throwing 24 touchdowns to 10 interceptions. Um, I think this is a great pick for Ohio State as they've been struggling in the QB market, of course, after the loss of Kyle McCord. And so the big thing here is, well, Will Howard is a senior coming up, so this will probably be it for him. And so if you're Ohio State right now, you're looking at who are you going to either develop or who are you going to look at next season for recruiting, or are you going to go for another transfer quarterback? So, I mean, you could always develop Lincoln uh, Keenholz. He's, I believe he's going to be a sophomore next season. You can look into the next 2025 class to see who's the next up and coming, or you can go target another team's uh, QB, like how you did with Will Howard. So that's my thought. I thought it was interesting how – Ohio State looked at Will Howard and looked in his direction rather than a lot of other quarterbacks, but it makes sense now. Uh, what were your thoughts on this? Yeah, I think um, I think Will Howard was to some degree he was he had been linked uh, with USC. I think he got scared away a little bit after their um, kind of up and coming quarterback had such a great performance in that bowl game. Um, throwing, I believe it was a USC bowl game touchdown record. So that's really going to yeah. kind of scare away the transfers. And I think he's great. He's experienced for Ohio State. But I also think it kind of is another example, another drop in the bucket of the just the one-year, one-shot transfer quarterback, right? So they come in for one year like Sam Hartman did at Notre Dame. Um, and like a lot of players will be doing next year. Um, and they've only got one year of eligibility left. They're just coming in to try and shore up the team, right? Like, uh, you know, like a lot of different good quarterbacks, but that are now moving, like Riley Leonard, um, and Oregon's going to be doing in that same situation. And there's a lot of teams that it feels like may, might get stuck in this perennial, you know, new quarterback every year. I don't know if it's necessarily good for them long term, but it will certainly patch Ohio State and kind of get them through uh, to the next year. So I think it, it's a good solution. It's certainly a short-term solution, but I think it'll, you know, it, it fills a hole. Um, the next kind of big domino to fall that we want to discuss here is that Quinshawn Judkins uh, has left Old Miss. And an interesting one that I kind of, uh, interesting perspective is that it seemed like it wasn't like unexpected, uh, at least by Lane Kiffin and his staff. It seemed like it kind of, it rocked the college football world, I think, a bit. Um, but, and I, I, I didn't have any kind of inclination that it was going to happen before it did, but I think it, it's a big loss for them. He was a key significant piece 
and the combination of him and Jackson Dart in that lethal wide receiver room that they've developed uh, for next year, I thought was going to massively help their chances. But um, now that he's leaving, you lose a dimension of that attack. You lose some of the uh, the potency of what was going to be, I think, one of the best offenses in the SEC. I don't necessarily think it hurts their chances to a degree. I think they'll find someone to replace them. I don't know if they'll completely replace his production, but they'll replace, you know, there or thereabouts. And he's a, you know, a great talent for wherever he goes. He's a very good running back, very solid running back, one of the top running backs in the sport. And I think it certainly hurts Old Miss. They're going to have less veteran capability. And I think they're, I wouldn't be surprised if we see Lane Kiffin adopt a running back by committee approach. Uh, taking several guys, just trying to fill that production, rotating him in and out, getting a fresh running back and all of that. But I think it, it's not a huge loss. Uh, it's a bit of a surprise, but it sounds like it was a you go your way and we'll go ours. And it'll be, you know, parting as friends. We're, you know, happy for what you did for us. And we hope we wish you the best in the future, but it's time to split ways. And, you know, that's a reality now in college football that players go other ways, not necessarily because they don't, like the team, but just because the team's not giving them that NIL money that they may want. So what are your thoughts on this, Kirtan? Uh, I totally agree. So just to start out, Queen John Jenkins, I thought was a pivotal piece in Ole Miss's offense this year. I mean, being able to counterbalance your Jackson Dart with his lethal receiving room, like you said, with Quinshawn Jenkins' running capabilities – I mean, he's shown for the last two seasons that he's a very consistent running back. He was all, I believe last season, too, he was able to hit 1,000 yards rushing. He got to the end zone, I believe, 15 times this year, somewhere around that number. And I think right now his lead um, lead team that he's probably going to head over to is Ohio State. Ohio State, like you said, I believe it's now going to become a game of who has the deepest poc- uh, pockets. Ohio State, of course, being such a known, fran- uh, known program, being so built, being a team that's been dominating the sport for last decade, honestly, they have the money to per, to use an NIL to purchase essentially whoever they want. It's going to become a, a little bit like uh, soccer now, as in soccer you pay to get a transfer in, but in this situation you're not paying the other team, you're paying the player, and it's almost like how much is money a – importance to these players and how much do they value money to go switch teams. I honestly found this very shocking. Again, Quinshawn Jenkins, like I said, is a very consistent running back for Ole Miss. I honestly thought that he was going to stay, but after Lane Kiffin came out saying some questionable things about his future there, um, I honestly am sad to see him go. I thought he was going to be a really pivotal piece in this Ole Miss team. Ole Miss is probably going to be sad to, le- uh, to lose him as, again, he was such a pivotal piece in keeping that offense. Uh, two-dimensional, but now you have to look at all of Ole Miss's transfer portal uh, wins. Ole Miss is dominating the transfer portal. They have dominated the transfer portal. Uh, they're going to be still just as good as a team, so I feel like this is almost counterbalancing a negative with a positive. You're going to have an insane transfer portal class that just came in, but of course you're going to lose some pivotal pieces, and so for that reason, I think this doesn't necessarily hurt like significantly almost his chances of getting to the play, uh, playoffs and any higher things that they want to have when Cotton Bowl, when Sugar Bowl, when the SEC. But I do believe that this will benefit Ohio State more than hurt Ole Miss as Ohio State needs another pivotal running back and to be competitive, I think, in the Big Ten because I believe that uh, despite many de- 
thoughts. I believe Ohio State will actually struggle in this new Big Ten rather than being the always one seed, always two seed. Yeah. Uh, so uh, the next kind of transfer that we have is that Texas um, has seen losses similar, comparable to Alabama. Um, and those, the, you know, the, the very successful teams, but not, didn't get all the way to the top. Uh, Jared Thompson, uh, one of their safeties who has struggled this year. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if he's a little bit getting the boot. Um, he struggled this year, especially in coverage. Uh, so, so has the whole Texas secondary, but, uh, the safeties have been picked on in particular. Uh, Keaton Crawford is also leaving along with numerous other names, um, and to me, it's kind of just the indicative, you know, the success, the the doubting, people wanting to go other places, perhaps players trying to find another home where they're going to get more playing time. Um, and I think that it's um, – I don't think it's going to hurt Texas. I think it's kind of going to have a similar effect to Alabama losing a lot of players to the portal. Um, it's very, you know – it's kind of come and go. It, it's a reality of college football now. Um, I, you know, obviously you wish that everyone could stay and be productive and play at the first university they go to, but I think it's kind of just the reality of you're going to have some shuffling in it out, especially on as, you know, a top tier of a team like Texas or Alabama. Yeah, and I totally agree with that. His production value this season has been very low compared to what happened last season. I believe last season he had like 55 cackle involvements this year. He was running around like 13 area. And like we said before, Texas' secondary is going to get picked on because they are the weakness of that team. I do believe if Texas had Jonathan Brooks, I believe if they had a solid secondary team or they were able to uh, account for all of the lethal weapons Washington had, they would have made a title run. Honestly, I predicted them getting close to winning it. I thought Bama was going to win it, but that's another story. Um, it's exactly like you said, Kieran. When you're on these top-tier teams, the Bamas of the world, the Georgias, the Michigans, the Texases, you're always going to have turnover, essentially. So if you're not the best, your job is jeopardized. Uh, jeopardized. And that's meaning, like, Texas is bringing in a number three recruiting class, with some top cornerback, with some really pivotal uh, secondary positions on that roster or on that class that they're bringing in. And I believe that if you are not good enough to play, you're going to either have two choices. You're either going to have to become better or you're going to get benched for someone who's younger, someone who's more athletic, someone who's faster. And that's the big problem with bigger programs. And I believe you recap this perfectly because of the senses. If you are on a bigger program, you're going to get more players in, you're going to get more talent in. And instead of it being you earn your spot, it's more or less, if you already have the job, it's about defending the job because people will take it from you. Yeah. And I think this is kind of a, it's a, it's a indicative of these top tier teams, especially teams that have ascended, right? Texas, you know, eight and four last year, uh, 11 and two this year. Um, so obviously, you know, a huge uh, a swing um, of, you know, skill and of talent and of becoming a higher quality team. And that's going to come with some of those eight and four, you know, eight and four players, eight and four, five and six, you know, uh, five and seven players. 
some of those are going to have to, you know, be cut by the wayside. It's just the unfortunate reality of becoming a top-notch team. Um, and so the last kind of transfer thing that we would transfer thing that we wanted to hit here is Roy Dell Williams. Um, a key in their running run game and running back duo is out of Alabama. Yeah, and also this thing's out. Uh, Roydell Williams, he was a key factor in that offense, but slowly he wasn't – when you look at the grand scheme of things, he had over 100 uh, handoffs this season. He had 100 rushing attempts. But at the end of the day, he's only averaged five more yards per carry, which does make sense, but it was almost like his season stalled out because we can't forget the fact that he only had five touchdowns in the end. And so early on when Bama was questioning who's going to be their quarterback – they leaned on Roydell Williams to be their guy. But Roydell, I don't feel like, played to the level of expectations we all had him at. And it almost seemed like he stalled out this year. And so that's why he's going to probably head out of Bama. And especially if Jalen Morrow's coming back. Again, I think Jalen Morrow will also be another Heisman candidate this year. As he now has a chip on his shoulder. He is a veteran quarterback. He's been in the big moments. And he's ready. And he's a dual, and he has dual threat capabilities. We know he's just as effective on the pass as if the run. And honestly, to me, it sometimes seems like he's more effective running the ball than he is passing it as he makes better ideas or he has better movement with the ball in his hands. He seems more controlled rather than him only taking his first uh, option and trying to throw the ball into tight windows. And so I can see why Roydell Williams is leaving. I think Bama would like more spacing as a team. It's almost like a basketball term in this case. They need more spacing to give Jalen Monroe his way. And I think the new Alabama offense is moving towards lethal dual threat capabilities. And so the need for reliance on rushing won't be as important this year as they can now run the triple option and they have Jalen Monroe to fall back on. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that's, uh, you know, I think that's really going to be key for them, especially his development if he stays there. Obviously, he has to get better in the passing game uh, in the grand scheme of things for them. But if he stays there, then, yeah, certainly that's the direction that Alabama is headed. Uh, so moving on, uh, this is kind of tied in with transfers, kind of not. Um, a couple of early draft declarations, and we'll continue bringing uh, in more of these as these happen uh, and in future episodes, is that Jatavian Sanders is headed to the draft. And so is, and this absolutely surprised me, uh, Jonathan Brooks is headed to the draft. Yes, Jonathan Brooks, the running back from Texas who tore his ACL, will not be football ready until early next season at the best. Um, I can't imagine he's realistically going to fully participate in the combine. Um, I don't know fully why he's doing this. It does not make a whole lot of sense to me. Um, but, I mean... Maybe he saw C.J. Baxter's production and decided it was time to move on. But to the draft, I don't know. Uh, Kirtan, let's get your thoughts on this. Alrighty. Well, again, we're covering some Texas players here, so I'm not trying to offend any Texas fans, i.e. the one talking to me. Um, let's start off with Jatavion Sanders. Um, Jatavion Sanders, I 100% agree with him going to the draft. I think he's draft ready. I think he has all the measurables that any NFL scout would want, any NFL scout team would need. If I had to give a draft comparison, I would say he's almost like a Sam Laporta. I think he's a little bit faster. I think he's a little shiftier. But he's a big body. He's good at the blocking. And so 
I think this is a great idea for him to leave. I think he's played he played really well against the Huskies in the national championship. And he looks like a real a well rounded tight end. And I mean he won't be the first tight end off the board and for obvious reasons because we all know who the top dog is, and that's talking about Brock Bowers, the tight end of the draft. But Jatavion Sanders, he's a close second. He'll be a good second-round talent. I see him being a backup tight end for a while, but I do think he'll thrive, especially as NFL is moving towards a tight end-focused game, as we see with Lamar Jackson, Mark Andrews, as we see with Patrick Mahomes and his uh, and Travis Kelsey, of course. And so I do think that tight end is going to be a more valued position late through the years, and I think he'll succeed. Um. Who thought Jonathan Brooks is going to the NFL draft? I mean, I can't even lie. This blew like this blew my mind, and I still honestly can't wrap my head around it because of the fact that Jonathan Brooks literally got injured off of during the middle of the season for Texas. Not discounting the fact that he probably, in my opinion, should have won the Running Back of the Year award. I forgot what that award is called, but he was having outstanding numbers. He was one of the top players, I believe, in this, in all of NCAA this year, especially at the running back position. But the part that's mind-boggling to me is, does does um, does Jonathan Brooks really think he's going to succeed in the NFL? Even though, honestly, I'm pro- I'm projecting him to be a early, like late fifth, early sixth round pick, because when you tear your ACL. You're not going to go back to college. You're going to play straight ball, like NFL ball. I don't think he'll be ready for that level of play yet. I don't think he'll fully recover from his injury. And there must be something going on, especially with the trainings, uh, especially with the offseason in Texas, because I don't know if there's a top-tier running back coming in that he feels threatened by. I don't know if C.J. Baxter is threatening his position. But Jonathan Brooks, to make this type of change, essentially, is mind-boggling. What were your thoughts on this game? Yeah, so, I mean, his stats this year were, I mean, I look back on this, they were pretty outstanding. Um, he had 187 carries for uh, 1,139 yards with an average of 6.1 yards per carry. Um, and that that's really great numbers. Um, he did not play all of the games, so you certainly have to imagine that if he did, that number is somewhere 15, maybe 1,600. Um, and, you know, maybe they'll take that into consideration. I'm not entirely sure. Uh, but it, it, it it's certainly shocking. Um, I think that, I mean, I can't imagine he'll go very high. Uh, maybe he was encouraged by Sarkeesian in that group there because they have such a deep running back room. I don't think it's really going to hurt Texas. I think he was a dynamic talent, and I think he's going to be missed. But I think that C.J. Baxter and Jaden Blue and all of those, you know, players behind them are easily and will replace his production and will get better. So I think that, you know, I really think that it's going to be – he's going to be missed, certainly, but I think he's also not going to doom Texas's title hopes next year. Um, So it's – it's, uh, it's his personal decision to go to the NFL. We'll see how it works out. Um, obviously, Bijan Robinson is doing very well in the NFL. I have no clue if that had any bearing on it. 
but that that's his decision. We have to live with it. Uh, I think you're right about Jatavian Sanders. Um, I see him. He's he's a very good tight end uh, in college football. Uh, I would say certainly second to Brock Bowers, but I think they're similar. They're very good in receiving, also very good in blocking. Um, and I think he'll be a good NFL talent. Um, and, yeah, I, I agree with your somewhere around the second round projection. Um, so, yeah, now let's go ahead and move on to some season ratings, 1 through 10. And we've got a few more of those uh, than usual. Uh, and the first two are a couple of doozies, and we're going to start off with the team we've been talking about quite a bit this episode, um, and we'll continue to talk about um, the Texas Longhorns. So go ahead and give us some thoughts and your rating. All righty. Like I always say, this is my favorite segment. I love reflecting on the season that just passed and looking at all these teams as almost a collective whole. Um, yeah, kicking off with Texas, I mean, what can you really say except the number 10? Um, from a team that looked honestly, the way I predict, the way I envision Texas when I hear someone talking about the Texas Longhorns team is I think of Texas as the Dallas Cowboys, essentially. Y'all play great against top tier talent, but when it comes to itty bitty schools that you should have no problem squishing with two fingers, somehow they take you to overtime and sometimes they beat you. And as we saw last year when y'all lost to Texas Tech. And so this year, I feel like Sharkeesian did a really good job of cleaning that up. He was able to take his team as a whole and almost improve fully, and he was relentless every game. Every game, I believe he scripted like the first 50 offensive plays. He was just relentless, and so it didn't matter if you were the Bama that they faced in Week 2 or if you were like Kansas that they played, I believe Week 6, Week 7, I don't know the full number on their schedule or what game they played on. But he always gave the same amount of effort in coaching, and the players uh, gave the same amount of effort in the games as they did against Alabama, which in turn made him a better team as a whole. And to go from a team who really was always predicted to be such a top-tier team and to finally almost feel that ease in your heart if you're a Texas fan of, like, we're actually improving, we look like a solid roster now. And to finish at the three-seed, of course – a loss that I don't believe should have happened, but that did happen uh, against Washington. But I think this season as a whole, compared to last, compared to the for the Texas fans, compared for the coaching, compared for everything, it has to be a perfect ten. All right, so I'm going to disagree with you here, um, quite a bit actually. So I think it was it's been understood that this year, you know, you had to go. Realistically, 10 wins was the the bottom benchmark, I think, especially considering how much talent Texas has. Uh, one of at least the top two talented teams in college football, I would say. Very talented, very athletic. Um, talent everywhere. Um, and I think, you know, while Texas did arguably surpass their preseason expectations, I think I think a lot of that was tempered by the fact that there's not, you know, there's a, the perennial Texas Texas hype train, Texas hope, right? And I think that a lot of people finally kind of tamped it down and said, okay, let's be realistic. They're not going to get that many wins. They're not going to do that, you know, they're not going to do as well. And I think when you look at just sheer evaluating on potential, 
just just looking at the potential, looking at what they should have done, what they had the ability to do. And the national championship game, which we'll talk about later, thoroughly convinces me that Texas not only could have, they should have won by Washington. There was no reason to drop that game. There was no real reason to drop the Oklahoma game. Um, you were outcoached in the Washington game, frankly, just completely outcoached, outdone, especially on the defensive side of the ball. And for me, it's a 7 out of 10. I mean, Sark has done a great job. He's proved that he's Texas's guy. There's no doubt in that. But I think there's a lot of improvement to be had, and I think that he knows it. And I think deep down the whole program knows it, that this year should have been, come Monday night, it should have been Texas with the national championship. But it didn't happen. Um, this is just me being frankly honest. When you look at the competition, when you look at that, they should have at least had a fighting chance for the national championship. I don't know if they would have won it. Michigan is a very good team. So is Alabama, but they should have gotten past Washington. And I've, to me, the Oklahoma loss is also at least somewhat unforgivable for how deep good your defense has played. So to me, yeah, it's a seven out of 10. Uh, so next we move to uh, the team that was beaten by Texas and Michigan, uh, Alabama. Uh, so, Kirtan, let's go ahead and get your reaction or rating here. Okay, like we said, I'm going to evaluate this entire season as a whole. Um, and one thing I can say about Bama is that the key word you're looking for for Bama is resilient. Bama, in their own house in Tuscaloosa, week two, face a Texas team in what is ESPN's game of the week. And honestly, I believe probably number three, number two ranked game of the year. Uh, this entire season, I believe that was such a phenomenal game to watch. And, of course, I was rooting for Texas because they're my second favorite team behind the Bulldogs, and I hate Alabama. I'm going to be open about that. But Texas uh, went into Alabama, beat them considerably. I believe it was like a 5, 10 points differential. Uh, I think it was double digits, yeah. But the thing was, it really showed – um, it all, it showed all of Alabama, like, is this the end? Is this the end of our dynasty? Will Nick Saban be able to hold us together? And then come week three, when you head off to USF and you beat them by, like, six points, that is mind-boggling. That, that is when I gave up all hope in Alabama, and I was cheering like crazy. I was about to say, Georgia, we're going to bury these guys. We're not going to need to play these guys. They're not going to make it to the SEC championship. They're bums. They're washed. Saban's too old. He has dementia. He's sorry. He's, he's just bad. He's a bad coach right there. And then the greatest comeback story ever. It's almost like Bama wanted to do this to us just despite every single Bama hater. Jalen Milrow makes his comeback. He gets a starting position back. And the offense, instead of flowing to Alabama's needs, flows through Jalen Milrow. They cater to Milrow's type of play. And Milrow goes on to have a phenomenal season. And honestly, every game he played looked consi- like looked like a easy, almost not an easy win, but looked like a considerable win. And it showed dominance of Bama. Even with the only one I can think was Auburn that really kept it close and kept it scary for Bama. But besides that, uh, Bama. I don't know why I'm so Georgia, but Bama has a great comeback story. They went from a team that was ranked 11 in the year, very beginning of the season, week three, to a team that finished fourth. They beat Georgia in the SEC Championship, and it showed real resilience. And for that reason alone, 
I'm not going to give him a perfect 9, a 10. I think I'm going to give him an 8 because where you start the season doesn't matter. And like that famous quote is, it's not where you start. It's about where you finish. And when you finish in the top four and you consistently, even though you had a breakdown in the early uh, early parts of the season, when you come back and you win and you show that you are a top four deserving team, again, top five concerning team. I don't want anyone from Florida State fans to get mad at me, but they showed resilience. They came back, and for that reason alone, I'm going to give them an 8.5. Yeah, so I think Bama has had a great season. You know, Saban is clearly the greatest coach that has ever done it, uh, at least in our sport. Um, And, you know, I think there's always going to be a lot of Bama hatred. I mean, they are the bluest of bloods. Um, so blue, it's almost purple. Um, and I think that, you know, that, that they've had a really good season. They've been able to turn around. We've seen two different Bama teams. We've seen an early offense that relied almost solely on shot plays that could only throw it down the field, that only had that big play, big prey, you know, hope um, to a more balanced attack, a better attack. Their defense is manned up. Um, They've gotten much better on the lines of scrimmage, which I think is a crazy – the turnaround has been crazy from, you know, week two looking like, you know, they were peewee football kids against Texas, uh, you know, just letting them run through the line, getting run penetration, stopping the run, not being able to really throw their weight around to absolutely mowing Georgia defensive line off the ball. I think that O-line move, I mean, that coach has been incredible. Um being able to just push around a team, be more physical, and win that game, I think it it shows a lot for Alabama. Um, They had, you know, they had a shot to beat Michigan, didn't play very well, did not look like Alabama. And I think that, you know, next year they're going to be a contender. Uh, They're always going to be dangerous. They're always going to be threatening. And, you know, to me, they're always going to be here until Nick Saban moves on, um, and probably even after that. So, yeah, I think for me it's got to be a 9 out of 10. I think it's one of his best coaching jobs. Uh, but we have to take into account that beginning of the season they did not start strong. But becoming, being able to come roaring back really says a lot about the team. It says a lot about the group. And like Nick Saban himself said, you know, he wished he could have gone farther. It was a really special team and a special group even to him. So I think that means a lot. And, yeah, it's a 9 out of 10 for me. So the All next right. team yeah. – yeah. So next team we're going to rate is uh, the Fighting Tigers, the uh, Louisiana State University. So go ahead and kick us off, Kirtan. Um, well, let's just say this. LSU, I feel like, is always the same team. They're always the same great team every single year in and year out. I feel like ever since Joe Burrow and what he's done for the program – the program's always stuck around. They've always had a good season. Um, of course, let's first talk about how they had the Heisman winner in Jaden McDaniels this season. He had an absolutely phenomenal season. I believe that he was a well-deserving uh, Heisman Trophy candidate. I think Michael Banks was a close second, but I do believe that Jaden McDaniels was the right choice. Um, I mean, you can never discount LSU because LSU is always a great school. But they're always consistent, and the fact that I mean by that is they always play stellar, but they can never get over the hump of Alabama. They can never get that little push. I don't believe they've they've come close to an SEC champ. They 
they have not come close to an SEC championship since Joe Burrow and well everything he did for the program. But like where I'm at right now, I would have to say that if it was um, I don't know the best way to word this, where I'm at right now is that. I like to think that LSU is always a great program, but like I said, they just can't get over the hill. They can't climb the fence, whatever analogy you're going to use. They can't get over the hump of Bama. They can't oh, they can't wash away the tide, essentially. And for that reason, Bama beats them, and they never make it to the SEC championship. We'll see if that changes, of course, with the new layout. But for that reason, I have to give it an eight on the season. Yeah, so I think, you know, LSU had, and I mean, you can dispute this if you like, but I think LSU had the best offense in the country this year uh, with Jaden Daniels and his supporting cast like Malik Neighbors and others. Um, Malik Neighbors is headed to the draft. A little quick note there for you. Um, And to me, they have wasted what was an offense the caliber of 2019 LSU via having a defense – that would just, you know, let you score points. Um, they ju- they were not good. They did not show out even with Harold Perkins and others who were expected to be stars. You know, you could just run up the score on them. And you could always force the Jaden Daniels and the offense. They had to be in these situations. You know, they had to be in these huge, you know, late in the game, fourth quarter comeback, fourth quarter game-winning drive, all of that. And – Despite not really fielding a defense, not fielding at least definitely not an SEC caliber, and I would argue not a college football FBS caliber in some extent, um, they have managed to go 9-3. and They've managed to win their bowl game. They've done really well. It's been a really good season. But I think just for the defensive faults and the defensive side of the ball, I think it has to be a a 6.5 out of 10 for me. It was a good season. I think there were higher expectations. And like you said, they can't get over the Bama hump. And I think that, you know, Brian Kelly is cleaning out that defensive staff. He's cleaning out that closet. And hopefully they'll be better next year. But they've wasted a Heisman quarterback uh, because of their defense. And that's, you know, what it comes down to. And that was the season for them. Um, So next team we've got is the Kansas Jayhawks. Um, And – so this team, they had a good season. You know, they beat Oklahoma. I think they were better than expected. They weren't able to make it to the uh, Big 12 championship. They won their bowl. Um, you know, they had quarterback uh, struggles um, with uh, back injuries uh, afflicting their starter. Um, and Jason Bean having to um, be the lead quarterback for most of the year. And that resulted in a couple of ugly losses to Texas um, and getting toppled by a couple of programs. But I think it was a good season for Kansas. Um, I think that in the next year of the Big 12, the I don't know about softened, but certainly definitely re-landscaped and reworked Big 12. Um, I think they've got a real shot. I think Arizona has a real shot. I think a lot of teams – have an angle on that championship. And I think it'll be a really interesting conference to watch is really, I mean, it's the third conference left, right? There's really the big 10, there's the sec. And then there's the big 12, because aside from the big 12, you know, you could argue ACC maybe, 
But now that the Pac-12 is gone, the Big 12 is really it. So um, I think that's that's big uh, for Kansas for next year. And I think it was a good season. Um, I think it was a good season. I think they you know delivered on expectations. So I think this has to be an 8.5 out of 10 for me. Yeah, and I'm right with you. Uh, I'm going to give my way too early Heisman candidate or Heisman winner prediction. And for this, I'm going Kansas's quarterback, um, Jalen Daniels. I think he's a phenomenal talent whenever he gets to play. I know he had to suffer lots of injuries this year, and I wish him a speed recovery. And he, I hope he gets back to his 100% self because when he is his 100% self, he is a dominant, dominant quarterback. He looks amazing out there. He reminds he has shades of Jalen Mc uh, of Jaden McDaniels. He has shades of him, and he, he's just a really well-rounded. Uh, quarterback. Um, honestly, this season I was shocked, and I'm gonna give another controversial take. One reason I did not believe that Texas should make the top four was because of the fact that the Big 12 looked weak. And by this, I mean we had the triangle of like it's like the triangle of just sadness, essentially. And the reason I say this is because we all know that Texas lost to Oklahoma in the Red River Showdown. Somehow, Oklahoma loses to Kansas in the regular season, and then Kansas gets squashed by Texas. So when I look at that triangle, and I look at point A to point B to point C, I look at it, and I'm like, man, all those teams must suck in the end, that means. If they all can beat each other, that means it's just a horrible conference. It's the Big 12. I'd understand if it was Georgia who beat Bama, Bama beat... I don't know, another great team in the SEC, uh, Missouri or Ole Miss, either of the teams. I could see that triangle. I could be like, okay, so all those teams must be great. But Kansas, Kansas beats Oklahoma. And then somehow, again, Texas, I don't know what it is. It might be because y'all have the richest program that y'all just said, here, here, committee, $5 million, $5 million, slip us into that number three slot. Slip us in, slip us in. Yeah, I think that was some questionable decisions. But going back to Kansas, of course, I think Kansas had a really up-looking season. Um, like I usually say in the last couple of um, season ratings I do, I like to look at it on an improvement scale of almost like a degree. And I feel like Kansas is going to be a really dominant team, especially on this new Big 12, including Arizona, including Colorado. I do predict um, Kansas to make it to that Big 12 championship game. Uh, I don't know who's going to be against. I'm leaning towards Arizona probably winning it. But I do believe... Like Karen said, it's your last – this can also sound really bad, but it's your last good conference of football with decent teams, with teams that are res- teams that are respectable, teams that you would see in the top – in AP's top 25 because the way it's looking is that it's going to be SEC, the most dominant uh, conference in the world, followed by Big Ten, especially with the new additions of the two – of the runner-up of the national championship and the national championship winner. And then the Big 12 and all the others will file into a single file line. Um, and so for that reason alone, and based off of the team's crazy improvement, I'm going to give it a 9. All right, so moving on, we have the Penn State Nittany Lions. Uh, Kirchin, go ahead and give us your thoughts on this one. Uh, this one I'm going to shoot straight to you guys. I believe Penn State... This might be a relationship because one's the Nittany Lions, the other one is the Tiger. I think Penn State and LSU are in the same boat. 
They are both two very, very good programs. I think they have the opposite play style, as I believe Penn State's defense is stifling and their offense is lackluster or you would want to see more. Kind of like how LSU has a really solid, a really well-built, air-rated offense running game essential to that team. And they're just such a good offensive weapon, but when it comes to the defense, LSU is lacking in that department. And so to give it to you straight and to give it to you fast, it's the exact same boat that that LSU is in. And that sounded a little weird, I agree. But to be honest, it's the same boat. The Penn State cannot beat Michigan. Penn State cannot beat Ohio State. It's the same way LSU can't beat Bama. LSU can't beat Georgia. And for that reason, I'm going to give them the exact same ranking I gave LSU, and that will be an eight. All right. So, yeah. So, to me, Penn State season went about like this. I'm going to draw you a diagram or I'll paint you a picture uh, for those of you on audio. So, you know, you're – Riding towards the edge of the Grand Canyon, right? Maybe you're being driven back by some fearsome advance. Maybe it's the the blowing wind of the north. And then all of a sudden you hit that edge, right? And normally you'd turn around. You'd fight. You'd, you know, maybe maybe go back the other way a little. Penn State just went straight off of it. I mean, like, completely off of it. Uh, The second they lost to Michigan... uh, Sorry for the problems. Kieran's thing cut out a little bit. Kieran, can you hear me? Yeah, I got you. All right, sorry. Um, that was really weird. Um, so, yeah. Okay. Uh, moving on. Uh, so, we were Pitt State, you know, when they got beat by Ohio State, it was mission critical. It was your heroes are off the edge of the canyon. You're fighting. You're hoping. You're praying that you could beat Michigan, and then they didn't. Michigan did not have a good game, and Penn State still got steamrolled by Michigan's running attack. Um, and therefore, they go to the Washington, the Washington pit of steamrolled by Michigan's run game. Um, and, you know, it's a, it was a make-or-break year, I think, in some respects for James Franklin. I mean, 10 wins is not bad in modern college football, but they've been there for a long time. They lost to Old Miss in an ugly, you know, ugly bowl game loss. It's not been good. For me, it's a 5.5 out of 10. They did not meet expectations, and they did not get over the hump that they needed to. Yeah, and quickly, I just want to apologize for all the background noise. My family is over for dinner. And so if you hear some background noise, I know I'm going to try to cut this up, clean the audio. But if you do hear some stuff in the background, that's what it is. Uh, Moving on to our next team, we have Kansas State Wildcats. Um, Again, another good, solid season for Penn State or for Kansas State. But I'm going to first kick this off to Kieran to hear his thoughts. Yeah, so I think Kansas State had a good season. Uh, I think, you know. There were some big title game hopes. They split time uh, between Will Howard, who we've talked about, and Avery Johnson. Uh, Will Howard is left, so now they're going to be going with Avery Johnson at quarterback. And, I mean, they won an incredible game in the snow, uh, kind of the Blizzard Bowl against Ohio State, I believe. And they fought and they battled and they came out victorious. And I think it was – it's you know, it's a good team. It's a resilient team. I think they met expectations. 
And I think it was, you know, it was a good team. I, I think I have to go with the five out of 10 for them. I mean, they met expectations. It wasn't spectacular. They had some issues rotating in and out players. It wasn't a great result. Didn't make it to the big 10 champ or big 12 championship. Um, so to me, yeah, it's a five out of 10. It's a good season. It's, you know, certainly not going to make or break any careers, but it's, it's a good middle of the road season. Yeah. And so now I'll speak on the matter of Kansas State. I think Kansas State led by Will Howard this season. Um, I think they were a little disappointing since last season. Um, they had the same amount of losses as last season, except the main thing here is that they didn't make the Big 12 Conference Championship like we saw last time. Um, the Wildcats, they were, they were just a surprising team. I thought they would do better than they did this year. Um, I don't know. I feel like they didn't play almost to their full potential as best we were this, especially coming off of a Big 12 championship. But, uh, I think for this season, I'm going to give it honestly the same, the not the same score. I'm going to give it a six, seven, six point five out of 10, especially because I think that they had some really key moments in their game. Um, not all the moments were bright, but they did have some good moments, especially taking number three Texas to overtime. Of course, this is because they had Malik Murphy starting at quarterback because Quinn Ewers, as we all know, got hurt for a little while. But still, it's like a very, very well-rounded and talented team as the Longhorns in DKR to overtime is something special. So for that reason, I'm going to give them a seven. All right, that makes sense. Uh, good rating there. Uh, so next we're gonna go to, um, oh gosh, um, I would say they suck, but I can't. I must be bile or biased, um, you know, unbiased, um, not at all partial, very down the center, straight line, not jaded in any man matter whatsoever. Uh, next we go to, if you haven't guessed it yet, Oklahoma. Um, somebody kick this one off. Um, they had, I think it was a good season, uh, with Dylan Johnson. Um, he's headed to Oregon, but the, the biggest deal is that Oklahoma spent, I have to fake all of their gas on what was a very good win against Texas, uh, which turned out to be the number three team in the country. Um, a very good win against Texas and, then proceeded to drop the next two games uh, to Kansas and then lost Bedlam and then didn't end up in the Big 12 championship game and then got their pants blown off by Arizona to bowl. Um, so to me, it was a season that, I mean, their defense played better. They were certainly better than last year. It's improvement. Uh, it's where they want to go. Um, I'm not exactly sure where they he- they're headed. But, you know, they're headed to the SEC next year. I think it'll be a tougher schedule. I think that they're going to be, you know, a middle of the pack, uh, below Old Miss, below Missouri, probably above, you know, maybe the the Kentuckys and the Auburns of this world. We'll have to see. I'm not sure exactly how well they match up there. But in terms of this year, I think it's got to be a 4 out of 10. I mean, they drop games that they just frankly shouldn't have. Uh, two of them that – let kept them out of any meaningful postseason appearances. 
Uh, they finished with a good ranking. It was a good team. Uh, the high-flying offense. Um, but I think that, you know, it was it was good, um, but it wasn't great. And that's why they're getting the grade that they're getting. Uh, Kirsten? Yeah, and I'm going to disagree with you on this one. Uh, I wouldn't say they deserve a four necessarily because we still can't forget that at the beginning of the season, Oklahoma looked like a real national title contender. They were blowing out teams left, right, and center. They did amazing. And compared to last season, especially if we're looking at the season ratings, where they lost 49 to nothing in what I believe was the most forgettable Red River showdown because it wasn't really a showdown. It was more or less like one person brought a gun, the other guy brought a stuffed animal. That was last season, of course. This season was a good showing. This season was fun. But what I do believe happened is that I believe they had such an easy, an easier schedule. They also, they did have tough fun still, but they had an easier schedule to finish out the season. But they squandered their opportunities. Uh, I think Kieran hit the one. I hit the nail right on the head with this one. I think they did spend up all their gas. They spent up all the strategizing. Their coach just didn't care after he beat Texas. It almost seemed like it seemed like he thought he was going to make it to the national championship. And then you wake up three, four weeks later, and you have the Jayhawks beating y'all. And then you're like, okay, maybe it's a fluke game. We'll bounce back. We'll bounce back. You go over next week to Oklahoma State, and State beats you. There goes your Big 12 championship opportunities and your last Big 12 championship opportunities. And so for this reason, um, I think it was a good season nonetheless. I think you definitely had a resurgence of season. Um, again, this is where I differ from Kieran. I do think that you'll be a decent team. Or I think Kieran did say this. I think he said that y'all would be in the middle of the pack somewhere. I feel like y'all will be ready if you're an Oklahoma State fan or Oklahoma fan. You'll be ready for the next SEC champ or SEC game. I'm all over the place. Sorry, guys. Long day of school. But uh, I think you'll be ready for your matchup against Bama in Oklahoma. And if there is a game where you do spend your gas, you spend on Alabama. And I do believe in Oklahoma. I do believe they'll be a solid team. And I honestly find them to be ranked top 15, if not top 10 next year. So for um, I don't know why I said Alabama. For Oklahoma, I have to give them a seven. All right, all right. Uh, so now a team uh, that goes by many names. Uh, most notably, right now, they're Lincoln Riley's team. Trash, uh, they trash, are trash, the University trash. of uh, Southern Carolina. Uh, and this year, um, they had a Heisman caliber quarterback. They had a decent offense. They had some good receivers. Um, and, you know, if you end there, it's a great team. But unfortunately, you have to kick the ball off and play what we like to call defense. They did not do that well. They did not. Uh, they got the shootout with Colorado. Um, they got beat by Arizona. They got beat by numerous teams. It, they People said they were going to be a national championship contender, and no prediction can have aged more poorly, I don't think. Um, and, you know, I mean, there's nothing to be said. I mean, the USC defense was so bad, it sent Caleb Williams crying to his parents. Like, he is a... Six-year college football player, and he went crying to his parents. 
because he couldn't win a game. That does, I don't know if that says more about Caleb Williams than anything else. And I'm not, you know, trying to slide his character or anything. But USC was bad this year. Uh, Lincoln Riley is, you know, the seat's getting a little warm. Uh, other than the sunny rays of Southern Carolina, or Carolina, California. Uh, and, I mean, to me, this is going to be my lowest rating yet, but it's a two out of ten. I mean, they needed to do better. Everybody thought they would do better. They should have done better. They did not do better. Very simple. Um, of course I'm going to agree with that. Like I said, trash, trash, secondary trash. D-line trash, safety's trash, linebacker's trash, allowed Nevada State to score 28 points. Trash, I mean, seriously. And so they had a really solid team. Uh, They were the heavy, heavy favorites. You would have made a lot of money if you bet for Washington to win the Pac-12 because USC dominated that entire area. They were ranked sixth or five last year. They had an amazing record. Seem like a great team. And, of course, we're on the backs of what is considered, not by me, but by Mel Kuyper as a generational quarterback. And so the reason I say trash, 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 trash is because when you're surrounded by arguably, and I still believe he is the number one quarterback in college football, when you're surrounded by Ray Rice, when you have a really star-studded offense, but you can't, as Lincoln Riley, can't spend time developing your defense when you – when we came into the season as fans, knowing that our defense struggled, like that is just, it just speaks to his character about how he is such a great offensive mind, but such a horrible defensive mind. Like if I was Lincoln Riley in the situation, I'm cleaning house. I'm knocking out all my defensive coordinators, everybody. I am flicking house and I am restarting. I'm restarting the clock. I mean, this season based off the last, based off everything, I'm giving it a one. And I know Kieran said that he was on the hot seat. Lincoln and I is on the hot seat right now. I think – I don't think it's really hot right now. I think he's still on the cool seat. I think especially if he can develop these quarterbacks and make them start stride and make your offense amazing, he'll he'll almost get back in the flow of things. But when you allow horrible teams to beat you or to score 41 points on you and rely – on your quarterback who actually had better completion percentage than he did last year, but it's not as good numbers. When you have to literally say, please, Caleb Williams, please carry me to this one win. And you have Caleb Williams, who if he can't do it for you, he has to go hug his mom in the back so he doesn't have anyone see him. Like, USC looked like a disappointment. They look like, and this is harsh, but I'm giving it, I believe it's my first ever one I'm going to hand out. Because you can't go from a team that was favored to win the Pac-12 a team that was favored to make the playoffs to a team who lost to UCLA, who got beat up by Oregon, who got beat up by Washington, got beat up by Arizona. You, they got beat up, and they just got a beat down, essentially. Every single time, it looked like USC, such a good team. They were the Texas of old. USC equals old Texas, equals Herman, Texas. We think we're going to be great. And then we fall off. We are Dallas Cowboys. Yeah, so one thing I must say here is they lost to a Utah team who lost to Northwestern in a bowl. I know that's not necessarily representative, but that does not look good. They won. They beat Cal by one point. Um, 
They barely beat Colorado. They had to go three overtimes to beat Arizona. They got beat up by Notre Dame. I mean, they got boat raced by Washington. It, it was terrible. Um, it was horrible. And uh, I must admit, I don't know where USC is headed. Other than to the Big Ten, I don't know where USC is headed. Especially losing Caleb Williams this year, who was basically almost their whole team. So now we move, you know, almost all the way across the country to the other Alabama, Auburn. Yes. Uh, so, Kirtan, let's get your thoughts. Um, the other Tigers, the Alabama rivals, the Iron Bowl team, the um, the Vanderbilt. Prayer and Jordan Hare. <laughs> The team where – see, I'm trying to come up with a good reference for this team. This team reminds me of a Appalachian State, if you will. They are a team who is not that great, who always seems like they're going to be good. They always show up. But when it comes to the itty-bitty games, they get crushed. When it comes to the Bama game, and of course, again – this is going kind of what I said last week that you can't predict rivalry games, but it's just, I don't even know. Auburn, they're showing signs of improve, improvement, even though they got blown out by Bama, but it's still like, it's like hard knocks over there because we can look at New Mexico, or we can look at uh, Auburn and say, hey, you put up a good fight against Bama, you look like a solid team. And then we jump back a couple weeks and it's like, okay, everything's good, everything's good, lost in New Mexico State. Where did that come from? Straight up lost to New Mexico State, lost to AM early on the season. AM was predicted to be good, but I mean, if you want me to be honest, I have to say that Auburn is a team that still needs to find their footing. They're showing little signs of improvement, but I don't think they're at the point of, they, they're not at the position they need to be in right now to make a push for even the top. 20, I think. I don't even think they'll make playoffs. I don't think they're going to come close. And so for these reasons alone, again, I'm giving you some hot takes this time. This is the hot wing episode. But for that reason alone, I'm going to give them a six and a half, a five, a five and a half. I'm kind of pissed about the New Mexico State. All okay. right, yeah. So Auburn had, and I do not say this lightly, the worst loss the sport has seen in quite a while. Um... Yeah, so they did not get beat in a close game by New Mexico State. They got beat by more than 20 points. They got you – know, the amount of ridiculousness and insanity that this game brings back is that just a few short weeks ago, I was sitting on my couch absolutely positively jumping with glee for the sport watching New Mexico State beat Auburn. Like, they just gave up. They had no life. They looked like they were, no offense, Fresno State. They looked like they were, uh, you know, an FBS team. They looked like they were, you know, some Division II walk-ons. I don't know, but they did not look good. They looked like it's ter- It's so uncomprehensibly bad. Um, eventually, that'll get wiped under the rug um, if Hugh Freeze has success there. Uh, right now, it will be 
the ammunition and the Alabama uh, insult cannon uh, from now until the next time we decide to change the playoff, probably. Um, and, you know, Auburn is a very difficult team to rate. They're talented, but they've lost talent. They're going with Peyton Thorne, who's played okay, but not great. He's not been a star. He's been, you know, it's a very difficult team to rate. It's a very difficult team to talk about. And, I mean, I got to give them a 5 out of 10. It's kind of a middle-of-the-road season is what you expected. Um, the weather forecast for Auburn Tigers is currently showing five to six years of doom and gloom, um, middle middle of the pack, at least a couple more years. So, unfortunately, for all our Auburn fans, there, there are hard times ahead. Uh, it will get better eventually. Uh, I've been a lifelong Texas fan. I know what it feels like. Um and, yeah, I mean, it, it, this season, I don't know how indicative it is, but I think they'll be a middle of the pack for a while. Maybe they'll slowly ascend. Um, but it, it's hard to predict and talk about Auburn. Um, but the next team we move to is much more of an endless spotlight team. And for this, I much, must reach behind me to the shelf of goodies and put on my Ohio State, my Buckeyes hat. Um it's got to go on because we're going to give a season rating to the Ohio State Buckeyes and go ahead and kick us off so I can show off my glorious hat. Okay. Well, I'll kick us off by saying I dislike that hat. I dislike Ohio State, another team I do not like because I don't understand why your mascot has to be a nutsack. To be honest. <laughs> Holy cow, we are going off the rails. Wow. Yep. This is going to be a wild episode for y'all. Just so you um, know, we're very unbiased. It's just the mascot. The mascot's yeah. the only thing. We don't no, no, yeah. Oh, I'm okay with the team. The team looks solid, except that mascot, he, he the epitome of a punchable face. Okay. <laughs> Anyways. <sighs> Ohio State, um, they're in the exact same boat as Bama, in my opinion. I love giving team comparisons to give – the watchers, um, just something where they can see where my brain is heading. Um, Ohio State, it's another, it's going to be a tale of Ohio State versus Michigan. I feel like it's going to be one of the big stories. I don't think Ohio State will ever leave the top 10, not for a very long time. I think they're going to be like a Georgia and Alabama for that matter. And I think this is going to spark a rivalry. I think the, the game, the game between, of course, Michigan and Ohio State will always be one of the biggest games of the regular season, not just because of the fan base, the rivalry, but because of the fact that these are the two powerhouses that always play, and it often not means a national title like spot. So to kick things off, um, Ohio State compared to last season, uh, I believe I, I believe it was a little bit worse. Of course, you had the struggle with losing C.J. Stroud to the NFL draft and having to start Colin McCord, and also Marvin Harrison Jr. He wasn't having a – he was. I don't think he was having a better season competitively. I think he had, like, a regular similar season. But it just didn't feel like the Ohio State that you thought was, like, the dominant Buckeyes, the, like, let's get them. No, it was – it was Ohio State. It was, we're going to be good. We always are good. But let's see how we handled the game, and they – didn't come to the game prepared. It didn't seem like I don't think they were ready for the game. I think they still need a little bit more scheming, a little bit more time planning the game, like the game. And I don't like referring to the game as the game because it gets 
confusing, but when I say the game, I'm talking about, of course, Wolverines, Buckeyes. But yeah, they didn't have enough time to plan for the game, and I always think they're going to have a great season. They're always going to be a great team, but for the fact that they, again, another team cannot get over the hump of Michigan, I was going to get a 8.5. Yeah, so the Buckeyes this year, they've been solid. They had a very good defense. Um Head wide by Tommy Eichenberg at linebacker. Uh, they had a good offense with a solid ride receiver court. Looked like a team with a lot of potential. Um, but, of course, they do play until next year, a one-game season. There was one game that mattered for them this year, and they lost it. Uh, and then they went to the Cotton Bowl, and in what was, you know, probably a bowl only marginally more exciting than watching Cotton grow. Um <laughs> They got beaten by Missouri and got given a severe case of Schraderia, um, as most teams that play Missouri are given. And to me, it's you know, it was a it was a good season for them, uh, not a great season. Ryan Day um, cannot beat Michigan lately. Um, now, no one did, no one could. They were fifteen and zero. It's the best loss that you could have, a loss to Michigan. Um, so, yeah, I think I got to give them a solid eight. I mean, it was a good season. Um, you got to see them win a lot. They lost the bowl game and they lost to Michigan, and that's really all you can fault them for. Um, and that's going to wrap up our season one to tens uh, for this. We'll continue to do those well into the offseason. Um, and now we move on to the big game that happened – in Houston, uh, as of recording this last night. Um, and th- therefore, I must say farewell to my Ohio State hat and put on the imaginary Wolverines hat uh, and the crown and hoist the championship trophy because the Michigan Wolverines are the number one program in the country. 15 wins, no losses. Uh, they beat Washington by 21 points. Um, in what was a honestly an awesome display of power and physicality. For those of you that didn't watch, here are a key, couple key stats that really tell you all you need to know. Um, Michigan ran for 303 yards. Washington had 301 yards of total offense. Um, Michigan averaged 19.3 yards a carry in the first quarter. Um, I mean, and that really sums up the story. And the other thing is that Michigan had scored all the points they needed to win on the first two drives. Just in the first two drives. Two drives, two Donovan Edwards, amazing, amazing. Just getting out of traffic and, you know, hit the clutch, hit the gas, and he's gone. Um, and getting out of there, amazing, incredible touchdown runs. He had a breakout game when they needed it. And the Michigan run game went crazy. They did the game plan. This is the best game plan to shut down a team that I have that I have ever seen, if I'm being honest. I mean, the the amount of the just the calculation, the learning from past teams' mistakes, the understanding of your opponent that went into putting together and executing that game plan was flawless. I mean, it was absolutely beautiful. Um 
it was something to behold. It was not as good of a game as the semifinals. You kept kind of, you know, waiting for Michael Penix to go off, waiting for him to do something, waiting for that spark to be lit in that chamber. Uh, but it never happened. Um, you know, Washington scored 13 points, which is the least amount of points that they've ever scored under Kalen DeBoer. Um it was an incredible game for Michigan. Uh, Michigan, Michigan, um, and I think it was really, you know, it, it speaks to the proficiency of that team. I mean, they were the best team in America this year. I think they're a deserving national championship champion. I think it's an incredible story, um, and I think they'll continue to talk about this season and Harbaugh and Team One Forty Four for a very long time. But let's get your thoughts, Kirtan. Um. I'm thankful to be able to watch the game fully. Um, I got to see the highs and lows, and Kieran summed this up perfectly. This game was defined by which team has more physicality, which team is, which team has the grit and grind to win the game, and that proved to be uh, Michigan. Michigan dominated the trenches. Donovan Edwards had a day. I believe he is now the second and third, like, Longest rushing touchdowns in a NCAA championship game, just behind Derrick Henry. Um, he was able to bounce runs. He was an uh, incredible talent. Um, Blake Corn played really well, and this game was won in the trenches. Essentially, um, I think Michigan's all. I believe Michigan's biggest advantage of the biggest weapon they have is ball management, time management. They can control the clock on you, and Enough saying about, uh, or enough said for Michigan. We have talked more about Michigan's defense and Washington's offense, who really didn't show up this game. Michael Penix had a lot of missed reads, a lot of missed throws, because there was lots of times where we saw Roman Dunze wide open in the middle of the field. But the fact that Michigan was able to do what Texas couldn't, and they were able to press pressure Penix, they were able to hit Penix, and Penix. Throughout the game, you could see him age on the field. You can see him lively. You can see him ready to play football in the first quarter. And then come to the third and fourth quarter, his facial expression, everything about him looked like he got beat up in a fight. I mean, he was getting hit left, right, and center. He wasn't making great reads as we thought he would. He wasn't delivering the ball with pinpoint accuracy, as we saw on the critical fourth down throw to Romadense, which was a little bit far to the left of Ramadanzi, which led him to drop the ball. And Washington came into this game. I believe they were really hoping on their offense and, well, mainly their offense, Ramadanzi and Michael Penix, to really seal the deal and attack the secondary of Michigan. But as we see, Michigan secondary is killer, and Michigan secondary was ready for the challenge, unlike Texas's. And I believe this was a hard-fought win for Michigan. I believe Michigan deserves all the credit they got. I feel bad for uh, Michael Penix, because especially after the year he's had, after recovering from, I don't know if it was both Achilles tears or ACL tears in both his legs, but just being a resilient quarterback, comeback player of the year, 2022, um, what do you call it, Pac-12 player of the year, uh, Sugar Bowl, uh, most outstanding player, all the, all the awards, he seemed great. And when it came to the very end, he just wasn't able to perform to what you can tell his expectations were. This game was great. Uh, I don't think we gave JJ McCarthy a little too much credit. I don't think JJ McCarthy really did much this game. 
I don't think he had 10 passing yards for zero touchdowns, zero interceptions. But this game was won in the trenches by Blake Corum, Donovan Edwards, and really Michigan's defense. And also thanks to number 73 on Washington, as basically every big play Washington had, 73 would have a holding play. So thanks to number 73 on Washington's offensive or Washington's offensive tackle, number 73, every single big play Washington Huskies had ended up in a bring it back situation. So there was lots of play. This wasn't a really, this wasn't a very entertainment value game. This was more, if you love football, you'll love this game. If you're more into the flashy throws, the big moments, the high stakes, it really wasn't your game. There were some times where it seemed like uh, Washington was going to come back, especially after they converted on that fourth and goal. But really, the game got out of hand once Penix, you could, once, once you could see Penix's expressions on his face and how he didn't want to lose, but his body was unable to almost like win the game now. Uh, you, all I'm trying to say is that once the game got to where, once the game got to the point where Penix looked verbally and mentally tired and abused, it was it was really over from that point. Um, Kieran said that Michigan was the best team in the world. I don't agree. I think if you let te- I think if you let Georgia into that conversation, Georgia's winning the entire thing. I think we are robbed. I think if Texas, <coughs> I think if Texas woke up on the regular. <coughs> The bias meter is going off. Sorry, that's no. the, my natural reaction to oh. incredible Hober bias is to cough. Um, it's not bias, bias it's true. Just went from uh, yeah, it's not bias, it's true. Um, so I want to yeah. just make my case for there are a few people who the credit for this game belongs to. Um, there are a total of I would say, you know. Really, it came down to, in the end, one person, and that person was Jesse Minter. He's the defensive coordinator for Michigan, and he did an incredible job. He did something no one else was able to do. And I here, I'm going to get a little technical here, and I'm going to break down who he did it. So, Michigan, really, I never saw them do the same thing twice. They were very unpredictable, which was a huge contrast to Texas the week before. Anytime you would see them go into, you know, four down linemen and then they had walked up a linebacker, no, when the gaps they lined up in were never the gaps they blitzed in. There was always some kind of stunt going on when it was a pass play. They always had that in their back pocket. If he throws the ball, we're going to run this stunt. If we're working on these run stunts, working on these run fits, they're able to shut down the run early. Um, Partially because um, Washington's star running back was hurt, but also just because they were able to just, I mean, they got pressure on him relentlessly. And it wasn't necessarily because they were beating Washington's offensive line. They were just taking them out of the equation. They were using stunts. They were using, you know, having Mike Sanderstill, uh, Mike Sanderstill and others blitz from that nickel position, blitz from the edges, blitz a linebacker. So you got free runners to take a shot on and harass Michael Penix. There were some amazing moves. There were some amazing spin moves by the D-line. But I think just being – they were so well coached to be able to execute all of those stunts. No two stunts looked the same. They never showed the same pressure look twice. They made sure Penix was constantly uncomfortable, you know, always having to run, worry about free runners to his blind side, you know, simply overloading one side of the line. Like they'd start with 
you know, two defensive linemen on each side of the line, and then somehow, middle of the play, you look, and it's three on four, and there's a free runner on this side, and Penix is running for his life. They only sacked him once, but they pressured him and harassed him so much that we saw the bad side of Michael Penix, the side that's not able to stand composed, the side that's not able to step up and throw, the side that's not able to, that's able to be off platform, that's able to, you know, just be unsettled, that's unsettled, that's flappable. That's, and I, I think that's the first time we've really seen that out of him. Texas got some pressure, but he was able to stand in the face and throw. He wasn't able to do that because of how relentless it was. And I think of how much pain it caused him by Michigan. I think it's an incredible job from their defensive coordinator. They were able to disguise the coverage downfield and the combination of a relentless blitz and disguised coverage. You know, they'd roll from one high to two high safeties to a man, look underneath. They'd look, show man, play cover three. They'd show a cover two and then roll into like a cover four or a cover one. And they did all these different things and just able to mix up mix up the coverages so constantly that you could never get a beat on what they were doing. But Texas did the same thing. You know, usually two high safeties with, you know, sometimes manned up underneath, sometimes off underneath, and that was almost the extent of the change, right? Usually the blitzing was, you know, honestly vanilla. It didn't mix it up a lot. They learned from every single one of Texas' mistakes and did the opposite. Whereas Texas, you know, gave their running backs nine carries each, they just fed Blake Corum and Donovan Edwards and they just fed them. They just gave, they just gave fuel to the two headed beast, turn around, hand the ball off, pitch the ball, throw it out of the backfield, just get them in space, get them somewhere, get the big guys blocking. And to me, all the credit belongs to that amazing defensive performance. Uh, Sandra still and Kenneth Grant and uh, so many others. They just all played fantastic. Um, but and they also picked Penix off twice, as opposed to fumbling the ball twice, which I think was another huge part of the difference. Um, especially starting in that third quarter when he had to make a comeback. Now the other thing is that Michigan's O line played incredibly. I thought JJ McCarthy was rarely under pressure, even as great Washington edge rushers Braylon Trice. Um, he was rarely under pressure. He was, you know, he missed some throws. He didn't play to the best of his ability. He did what he needed to do. He got that throw to Colson Love when he had that long scramble on third and 10 to flip the field, to pin Washington deep, and to allow that defense to pin their ears back. And I saw somewhere that Jim Harbaugh likes to watch nature documentaries of wolves hunting with his team before games. And, you know, credit to whoever came up with that story because that is brilliant. But hmm. – that's what they did. They were like a pack of wolves. They were relentless. Six, seven guys swarming to the ball. I think years from now, the defensive coordinators on every football team across America, when their defense plays lousy and when they need to inspire them, they will put this on and you'll see eight guys just flaming to the ball. And, you know, the guy gets hit once and then he gets hit twice. And you hear like four or five pad pops before the refs finally blow the whistle. Just boom, 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 boom. And it's just, it's not a way to play football. You can't beat that. If they play like that, it's impossible. And it, it has nothing to do with talent, although they are very talented. It has everything to do with just sheer will, physicality, and coachability. And the other thing that I think is indicative of this is that all season long, I've loved the way that the Michigan players talk. They talk like they're a team, not like they're one person doing something great. 
Blake Corum received offensive MVP. And when he got up there, the first sentence he said, they said, you know, how did you do it? How did you play so great? And the first sentence he said was nothing about his incredible jump cut, his amazing turn it on, turn it off speed, you know, slow down, turn around, get going, get out there, hit that gear. It was about his offensive line and his tight ends and the people that called the plays and everyone else that contributes to that team. So to me, it's the most complete team in college football. They're not the most talented, but they're the most physical. They're the most complete, and therefore they're the best. They all thank each other. They're all grateful for each other, and you can really tell it's a true brotherhood, and that's what you know everyone hopes to build. Even me playing high school football, that's what I hope to build with my defense next year. That's what I want to see. That's the kind of ferocity, the kind of intensity, the kind of well-coached, you know, knowing when to stop, but going hard, you know, playing your heart out. And, I mean, it, 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 I can't praise Michigan enough. They've done so well. It's such a good ending for them. It is terrible, so bitter for Washington. But they got outcoached and they got outplayed. That's just the end of the day. I mean, it convinces me that Washington is so much good, so much better when they're the unsettler. When they're the unsettled team, when they're the team that's unsettling the other team, right? You saw it against Texas. You saw it against Oregon twice. You saw it against Oregon State a little bit late. You saw it, you know, and when they're unsettling teams, they are one of the best teams in college football. They have that killer offense. But when that team is settled and locked in and they have a good game plan to beat Washington, and I think this is the first time we've seen the blueprint to beat Washington fielded. And, you know, I think it's huge. I think it's big. I think it's wild. I'm so, so impressed. You know, if Texas had been able to execute this game plan, they would have won that game. If anybody else, if Oregon had been able to execute this type of game plan, if they had had access to this, and Michigan just learned from the mistakes, and they went crazy. I mean, they went insane, and sorry for talking so long here, but it's, I mean, it's the culture, the just the sheer willpower, the devotion, the talent too, but the devotion, the culture, the dedication to planning and playing a great game, not thinking you're better, but knowing you are deep down that you can get it done playing together as a team, that's what stands out to me about Michigan. And that, to me, you know, the culture is always the that separates a very talented team from a great team that separates, you know, and, you know, five-star. I mean, hell, Michigan has six-star culture, man. They got six-star culture. It's crazy. It, it's amazing. They've had it. Harbaugh's built a program. Whether after he leaves for the – likely leaves for the NFL, whether it'll still be there or not, I don't know. But Michigan has six-star culture. They have dedication. It's a true brotherhood. This team, Team 144, is a very, very special college football team. They didn't beat everyone else by being more talented or necessarily being better at football. They just had a better plan. They were smarter. They were more aggressive, and they were more physical. And they were you know, more well-coached uh, and more cultured, and that was what won them the game. Yeah, and just for closing statements, honestly, Michigan – won this game, they are the well-deserving champs. As a, I don't think they would beat Georgia, but based off of everything we've seen this season with the fact that they handled business, they were smarter. Like Kieran said, Kieran hit, again, hit the nail on the head. You don't need to be the most talented team to be the best. You need to be the team that's most gelled, the team that trusts one another, the team that knows that someone will step up to the plate if you don't, a team that is just well-rounded in the fact that everything that you do is because some uh, some other player did something for you, whether that's Blake Corum finding an open gap because his O-lineman split a hole for him, 
whether that's giving J.J. McCarthy three seconds to make a dime of a pass to a wide-open receiver, again, because the O-line gave him the pocket. And the reason they won this game was because they were the more bonded team. They were the more well-rounded team as a whole. Coaching was better. The team played better. And honestly, Kieran was right on this part, too. It was the unpredictability of the defense that won the game is shook Washington. I think Washington likes coming into games as the underdog because with that underdog mentality, they think the other teams can try to play it safe and we're going to screw everything up for them. We're going to make the ground shake underneath their feet. They're not going to know what to do. Well, they came to this game as underdogs, but again, it's like Karen said, the ground shook underneath Washington. Michigan played out of their comfort zone. Michigan was trying different things, and that's what eventually won Michigan. There was a time where Michigan went uh, cover zero. They went no man coverage. It was just straight up man blitz. And I think that rattled uh, Michael Pence because everything he's seen on film is zone play. And I think because of the fact that Michigan used different tactics, used different strategies, that's what won them the game. And so to wrap up this episode, um, these are our thoughts on the college football playoffs and college football season as a whole. We're going to dive probably more into the college football season next week. We'll wrap it up for you. We'll give you our favorite plays, our favorite games, and the latest in offseason. Karen, is there anything else you'd like to add? Yeah, so I just wanted to discuss one thing real quick that I thought was important. Um, in the way-too-early top 25, just a few highlights here. Uh, Georgia's one, Texas is two. Um I believe Oregon is three, Bama's four, Ohio State's five, Michigan's six. And that kind of rounds out, you know, your top contenders. Um, Obviously, it's way too early. It will not stay that way, but that's just a little preliminary look at that. Um, Next episode, uh, just to give you some a little little spoiler, uh, we're going to talk about our favorite moments from the season and just some of the favorite, you know, experiences we've had in this great season of college football and reflect a little more. And then we will start on the, you know, predicting the 12-team playoff, predicting, you know, looking deeper into that top 25, maybe formulating our own rankings. Uh, We're looking forward to putting out, you know, a lot of new content uh, in this new year. Uh, It'll be our first complete year as a podcast uh, and as kind of a channel as well, doing videos. And, We're grateful to everyone that listens. Please continue to do so. Please tell your friends. Please subscribe to the podcast and to the YouTube channel. Uh, It's great. We appreciate the support. Uh, We're looking to continue to grow and do really great things. Uh, In 2024, I think it'll be a great year for us. Uh, Yeah. Um, Thank you all. And, uh, yeah, that's the end of this episode.